tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The Kona Coffee Growers Association says farmers are bracing for what could be one of the worst years for production. Yields are coming in at 30 to 40 percent less. The drought conditions and challenges with coffee leaf rust in the coffee bore have made it a tough 2022. And the weather is affecting coffee across the globe. Brazil is dealing with a poor harvest after dealing with a drought and frost. We talked to Suzanne Schreiner, head of the Hawaii Growers Association. She said coffee farmers should also be aware of a deadline in a Kona coffee settlement as they navigate through the rest of the growing season. Climate change is something we are very concerned about, but we don't have a lot of research on it yet. And so we're still struggling to figure out what that's going to mean for Hawaii coffee in general. Well, the latest headlines just a few weeks ago, you know, they were just talking about Brazil is having a heck of a time. And so they just aren't going to have enough beans to go around. Right. And Brazil is a commodity coffee and Hawaii coffee is their specialty coffee, so it's a little bit apples and oranges when it comes to pricing, but anytime their prices go up, it's going to impact demand overall. We already knew it was going to be an expensive year for Kona coffee in particular because it's a down year for us too. We don't have a lot coming off the trees, and that supply and demand chain means that farmers are going to earn a little bit more when they sell their coffee, but also not have as much yield, so it's complicated. <laughs> not entirely happy right now with how the harvest is going. Yeah, I mean, we've got our challenges here, you know, with drought conditions. Yeah, and we've seen that in, in Kona and Kau'u in particular. It's been a very dry year. We didn't get our usual summer afternoon rain, which has brought the harvest in a little bit early because it's been hotter than usual. And we're, we're struggling a bit with it on all ends. Okay. Harvest started in July and will continue through roughly December. And July is early. In a normal year, we would start harvesting in late August, early September, but nothing is normal anymore with the weather patterns. Everything is moving around on us. It's been a problem. How are we doing with the coffee beetle borer? The coffee berry borer uh, damage is up this year, partly because it was so hot and dry. They like hot and dry. They don't, they don't necessarily like our summer rains. Um, which promotes growth. The summer grains promote growth of a fungus that kills them. So it's a catch-22 for us. Um, it kills the fungus and it also increases the, the CBB. So CBB levels are up. We also had a particularly tough time last year with coffee leaf rust, which defoliated a number of our trees, which reduced yields again. So our trees are having a tough year overall. Gosh, I mean, you can't catch a break if it's not one thing, it's another. <laughs> we jokingly like to call it Farmageddon because it always seems like something new is hitting farmers. That's very true. Well, gosh, so if the yield in general is going to be down just because of the weather, what about just the demand, you know, for our coffee, our Kona coffee? Well, that's the good news. Prices will go up for farmers. There'll be less coffee going around. So we can ask more for it, and we'll try and we'll try and come out equal at the end of the year. But if our yields, some farmers are reporting yields off forty percent over their regular crop, for example, and we can't raise our prices forty percent to match that. But we will we will raise our prices to try and get a little bit closer to even, which is helpful for us, but not so great for the consumer. Well, I guess we just have to keep our fingers crossed, and and what hope for more rain and a better growing season next year? Yeah, that would be nice. More rain would definitely be appreciated. We saw the class action settlement that was announced. What can you tell mm -hmm. us about that class action lawsuit and how it was resolved? Well, this is the second settlement, the class action lawsuit. There was a first settlement earlier in the year that came about with a, a, a group of the defendants settled then and this is this is a second round there is a cutoff cutoff coming up on september 17th for farmers to register for that settlement fund and i'm not sure how much it'll be i'm just like the rest of the class i'm on the outside looking in but i understand this is a chance for farmers who didn't get in the round to get their name in there. There may be one more settlement after this. I believe there's still a few class defendants who are fighting it, but we're hoping that they will settle soon and we'll be able to move on from this fraud boxes. 
And this has to do with companies claiming that their coffee is Kona coffee, and it's really not. I mean, it's, it's you're, we're talking deceptive practices here. Absolutely. And this has been an ongoing issue for decades with Kona coffee. Anytime something is in high demand, you're going to have counterfeiters trying to make money off of it. And the new science that this, this lawsuit is really fascinating because each bean technically has a little footprint. It grows in certain soils. It collects certain minerals from those soils. And so you can fingerprint to a certain extent whether the coffee is real, really Kona or not Kona. And a number of companies on the mainland were caught with their, their fingers in the pie when they weren't actually selling Kona. And going forward, this is going to be an ongoing resource for us to continue the battle fraud. It's not going to stop, but this is the first step in changing the game for farmers. And it's really important because if these farmers are struggling now, if they can collect part of this settlement to kind of see them through, they just need to take advantage uh, of, of this opportunity and meet those deadlines. Right, right. It's a huge thing for a struggling farmer to get this funding. So we encourage everyone to go after it. Are you familiar at all? I mean, I don't know how much it has meant you know, what kind of windfall it's been for, for some of the Kona coffee farmers, the small farmers? Yes. The first round settlement was quite significant for growers and was certainly appreciated. We're hoping this the second one, I don't know the final tally, but it's bound to be helpful. This is a tough time of year for farmers in general with a, with a lower crop coming in. So yeah, we've been have a lot of happy farmers out there. Well, I mean, we're talking millions of dollars in this settlement and, you know, the farmers just need to realize, you know, they're, they're probably so busy farming, you know, these deadlines are out there. And, it, you know, if, if they can uh, uh, get some help, that it's important that they uh, to do the paperwork. Right. And it's very easy paperwork. It's basically just providing your name and your physical address, your tax, tax map key. And then it'll be, it'll be verified by the lawyers on the settlement side. But growers don't need to do much to get there. And most growers hopefully received paperwork in the mail. If not, there's a very easy website to sign up on. I believe it's KonaCoffeeSettlement.com. And they can move forward to join the class. Do you know how much an average farm was getting in the first round? I want to say it was close to $3,000 per acre. I don't remember exactly off the top of my head. Uh, for the average five-acre farm, it, it was around $12,500 to $15,000, depending on how, how much growable acreage they had in their farm, which for a small family farm is a significant amount of money, as you can imagine. And so as we have these challenges this year because of the growing conditions and the, the threats, it, it would just behoove these small farmers to take advantage of this while they can. Right. And I'm not sure if the settlement will be the same amount this time around but it should still be a welcome benefit for all growers. And uh, what can you tell us about our numbers? Uh, have we lost any growers, any acreage? I think it, it's it's been a tough couple of years with coffee leaf rust, um, with COVID, with growers having a really hard time finding labor and staff for their farms. Generally, the numbers on acreage are released around April of every year. And Last year, we we benefited. Uh, numbers came up, and the number of acres slide. Uh, um, I would expect your them to slide a bit, uh, and that would be acreage in production. There are a lot of growers who stumped their farms at the end of last year because the coffee leaf rust damage was so extensive, and so we're going to see the acreage slide off definitely. Mm. Okay. Do, uh, do you have any general estimates as to how much our yield is going to be at the end of the year compared to the previous year? I would estimate at least 30% off the previous year. Have we been down that low before? No, I don't think we have. Really? I think this is going to be a significantly low year in the last 10 years. Well, that was Suzanne Schreiner, head of the Kona Coffee Growers Association. The heat has made for an earlier harvest and has affected our coffee yields. Some farmers have been reporting being down 30 to 40 percent. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau. 
kawai oa umulokai ulana umawi ukahulabe uhavai we have a story about an exhibit featuring black and white photos from across the islands later in the show today, but that got us thinking about an intrepid 19th century woman who wrote a classic work about Hawaii. She was born in Yorkshire, England in 1831 and became a celebrated explorer, writer, photographer, and naturalist. As a child, she was frail and sickly, and health issues followed her through life. After a doctor had recommended more outdoor activity, her father gave her 100 pounds and told her to keep traveling as long as she could make it last. In 1872, a visit to Hawaii changed her life. She went on to publish the book, The Hawaiian Archipelago, Six Months Among the Palm Groves, Coral Reefs, and Volcanoes of the Sandwich Islands in 1875. In it, she wrote about visiting remote regions, which are known to few, even of the residents, living among the natives and otherwise seeing Hawaiian life in all its phases. We are looking for her name. If you know it, call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689. First one to get it right gets a reusable HP or tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NairitHawaii.com. This morning, we are getting an overview of where the counties are on dispensing permits to carry guns. HPR Sabrina Bowden joins us this morning. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So earlier this summer, following a Supreme Court decision, it affected the ways in which individuals may obtain and license to carry concealed or open carry firearms. Previously in the state, a police chief had more discretion in determining who could carry outside the scope of employment. So on the Big Island and on Maui, they kind of led the charge in establishing rules. And I believe on Maui, somebody has already obtained a permit. And on Oahu, there's about 400 pending applications, and they are waiting to do a public hearing on the rule changes. And that'll happen out in October. But Kauai came out with their requirements last week, um, and I spoke with Chief of Police Todd Raybuck, and from his perspective, he's more concerned about the ripple effect into the community. The Broom decision took away the ability for chiefs of police to make the determination. The Broom decision said, we will issue these permits if these individuals meet all of the requirements. And so with that, it's likely that we will see more individuals legally carrying firearms for personal reasons outside the scope of work. And in doing so, that means that community members may start to see individuals who are carrying firearms that they haven't seen before. And police officers will be having contact with legally armed individuals who are not caring for the purposes of employment. And part of that is on Kauai, the new requirements, they require different forms of identification and different types of certification that weren't required beforehand. So outside of the normal application process, which would be normally like security companies, the department hasn't seen any new applications. And Raybuck explains that uh, that might be because of the new requirements are being a little more strict now. We didn't get any from the general public. Those permits just had been placed online, and as of this morning, we still haven't received any applications back from the public yet. But we anticipate that we will. Part of the process includes that the individuals prior to submitting their application must qualify with a state-certified or NRA-certified instructor. And so I expect that there are individuals who are interested in pursuing a permit, are trying to identify where they can get those qualifications done, and then submitting that paperwork forward. 
So it's still kind of a process. It's still a process. And since Kauai has some of the lowest gun laws or gun-related activity in the state, it's sort of very unusual for people to even hear about guns or it being reported. Um, Raybuck is trying to get the ball rolling on sort of like the conversations of what people will see, what they'll expect. So in time by when people are getting issued permits and people are going to be open carrying, people know what to see. Indirectly and anecdotally, obviously, the topic of firearms is one that creates many conversations, specifically due to the recent incidents of firearm violence that has been seen across the country and unfortunately, even within our own state. And so people on both sides of the issue, some express interest in being able to carry firearms, and then others may be concerned and have some anxiety about individuals carrying firearms in the community as well. And so the police department or the Kauai Police Department, what we want to do is be able to ensure that we can communicate with both sides of this topic and be able to try to address whichever concerns the community may have. So, for example, KPD is working on different community outreach ideas, either through social media or their website, where they'll talk about different scenarios uh, like this one. Rebecca explains. So, for example, an individual is in the grocery store. They have a permit to carry a firearm and they're legally carrying that firearm concealed. Uh, They bend over to pick up a bottle of water and it becomes apparent by someone standing nearby that they have a firearm, not because the firearm is displayed, but because they see the outline of the firearm underneath the individual's clothing. What's that community member to do? And do they call the police? Do they call 911? Do they notify the store manager? Do they confront the individual? Those are all the types of questions that, you know, are need to be discussed in the open and so that we can avoid any type of misunderstandings or tragedies. It's a good idea, you know, because you want to know what should you do? Because for all this time, you know, it's very rare to have somebody pack a firearm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I just know as a parent, you just worry that maybe someone who is caring illegally, but maybe is somehow careless and then it gets into the hands of a child, you know, uh, who might think it's a toy or something. But yeah, you do Mm want to, you know, make sure you've run down those scenarios. Yeah. And I know that the Honolulu Police Department, they do their community policing seminars uh, in schools and in the community. And I was recently at one, I think a couple months ago. And during that seminar, we talked about active threats and sort of now I know what to do if I see somebody with a gun or I hear a gunshot when I'm in the grocery store. So I think KPD is sort of going in that same route as well as wanting to kind of get people together to have these discussions, have these PowerPoints before it's an issue. Right. Because, yeah, you want to be able to, I guess no one really knows how you're going to react when you're in a situation, but Mm -hmm. at least you can talk this through and be a little better prepared if Talk the situation it through, know happens. how to control your breathing, know how to call. You know. Yeah, take a deep breath. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Sabrina. This thank was you. really enlightening. We've been talking to HPR Sabrina Bowden. Check out her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. Civil Beat takes a closer look at the GOP's primary election results. Reporter Blaze Lovell joins us for today's reality check. Good morning, Blaze. Hey, good morning, Catherine. So you did some work here. You went down to the precincts and did some analysis of uh, the turnout. Yeah, you know, we really wanted to see where exactly we have possibly more Republican voters than in years past because, you know, there was a big spike um, this year, especially of uh, more people casting, self-identifying themselves as Republicans on their ballots. We wanted to look at where that was. And we saw that turnout for the GOP is up the most in areas where 
they were already doing kind of okay, you know, where they had a presence, areas like West Oahu, uh, the North Shore of Oahu, uh, Kona, Side, Hawaii Kai. Uh, so there wasn't a really big surprise there. But we also noticed that Republicans tend to do less well in urban areas and uh, more affluent neighborhoods on Oahu in particular, like in Manoa and Nuuanu, those neighborhoods experience less of an increase in Republican voters. And there's a couple uh, factors uh, that we found out after talking to some people that, you know, maybe played into why certain areas saw a much bigger increase in Republican voters compared to 2018. One of those is that they might actually have a competitive race and uh, the GOP might actually see an opportunity to pick up a seat in the legislature. The uh, top district that saw the biggest increase in Republican voters, uh, it's District 41. It's out in Eva Beach. It's currently represented by uh, Democratic Rep. Matt Lopresti. Um, you know, and the GOP might see him as vulnerable after a DUI arrest earlier this year. And there was um, so the competitive races like those might be spiking a lot, a lot of turnout in some areas. Another is outreach. I talked to Brett Kulbis. He's the Oahu Republican chair. And he said that they've increased their outreach efforts, you know, more get out the vote events, more registration events. They're partnering with faith groups to reach different communities. So there's a lot of different factors at play when, you know, we're looking at this these turnout numbers. Yeah. And, you know, there is also the Trump uh, factor, right? What's going on at the national level, how that might sway a voters to take a position. You know, they, they can become very emotional uh, and and uh, vote, you know, based on what's what the headlines are are uh, buzzing about. Exactly. And when, you know, I talked to a lot of the party officials, they said that that's a lot of that is what's motivating, you know, these voters is they're seeing what's happening on the national level. They're looking at the same issues here. Um, you, you know, a lot of Republicans took issue with the government's handling of the pandemic. Um, there's concerns about public schools and a lot of that national level news is, could be driving turnout here locally. Yeah. And, you know, like what we saw with uh, uh, groups of people coming out uh, and protesting over the mass mandates, vaccine mandates, uh, it was just kind of curious to see how that kind of played out over the pandemic and then how it translates to, uh, you know, the ballot box. Right. And that, that's kind of the thing that we'll still need to see whether or not this increase in, you know, Republican voters actually um, results in more Republican candidates being elected. Now, remember the last time we had this many um, people casting ballots for Republican races, Linda Lingle ended up becoming governor. So there's a lot of parallels between now and 2002 and you know whether they could pull anything off this year, that's still yet to be seen. But uh, you know, it should be pointed out that just because there's a greater percentage of people self-identifying as Republicans, that might not mean to pick up more seats in the legislature. For example, District 47, that's most of the North Shore, it had the highest percentage of Republican voters at 41 percent. But there's still a Democrat that represents that House district and has for years, um, even though it's been one of the, you know, biggest places that Republicans have turned out. On the other hand, District 18, that's Hawaii Kai. Turnout was, you know, at 21%. It was about average, but that's the area that's represented by Republican Gene Ward in the House. It's the closest thing we've got to a Republican stronghold here. Yeah, so it doesn't really um, kind of fit nicely in boxes or, or with, with trends that are happening on the mainland. No, no, nothing really does. And even if you look at, you know, socioeconomic factors like income, education, attainment uh, at all these GOP um, leaning districts, you know, it's all over the place. You can't really fit them into a, a really nice box as maybe you could like someplace on the mainland. But that's because we're Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's so fascinating, though, to me, you know, just to see. Uh, but like you said, the Republicans are fielding a lot of candidates this season. And, uh, you know, for folks that may want a stronger two-party system, yeah, will they go Republican when they normally have been Democrat? I don't know. We'll see what happens at the top, right, between uh, Iona and uh, Josh Green to see what voters think on how that plays out. Yep. Definitely a lot more candidates this year. All righty. Well, thanks so much, Blaze. Appreciate it. Thanks again. All righty. We have been chatting with reporter Blaze Lovell for today's Reality Check. You can uh, check out his story online at civilbeat.org.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ferraro Choi, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. Supporting Hawaii Public Radio for more than 25 years, ferrarochoi.com. On the next Fresh Air, how lawyers from one giant law firm, Jones Day, became part of the Trump administration, helping shape the agenda and move the Supreme Court and federal appeals courts to the right. We talk with David Enrich about his new book, Servants of the Damned, Giant Law Firms, Donald Trump, and the Corruption of Justice. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. Created with many hands from Hawaii's community, the immersive exhibition Rebecca Louise Law Awakening explores the human connection to nature. Opens September 17th. to get feedback on a series of stories about polio in Hawaii. Listener Susan O'Doyle says, growing up as a polio survivor gave her the empathy to thrive as a nonprofit executive. She served as CEO for many years of the Aloha United Way and CEO of the YWCA, but she didn't really talk about having polio, which she contracted in the 1950s. Her left leg is weak. She only recently found out that she was diagnosed with post-polio syndrome. So I've had it all my life, and I've lived with, you know, very, what, what I have to say, most people would consider very minor effects, but I'm reminded of having had polio every day. And a couple of years ago, I started noticing that I was stumbling more, and maybe it seemed a little harder to get uphill and that kind of thing. So I went to my doctor and ended up getting referred to a neurologist who said, yeah, I, I think it's post-polio syndrome. There's nothing we can do about it. So you just will check it every year and you just have to get used to the idea that you're going to get weaker and weaker and eventually if you live long enough, you won't be able to walk anymore. So that's kind of where I am now. I'm just grateful that I can still walk, um, but I have that to look forward to. Wow. And so you shared with us that, you know, after hearing some of these other polio stories that you were just reminded of how painful it was for your family dealing with this at a time when there was so much uncertainty. Yes, exactly. And, you know, the thing that really struck me was that I really wanted people to know that my getting polio was so traumatic for my mother that I was probably 35 or 36 before she could even bring herself to tell me what happened when I caught the disease. And she told me it it was 1952. I was just learning how to walk. One morning I couldn't sit up. And she just knew right away what it was. So she, but she bundled me up and in a state of shock just went out to wait for the bus, caught the bus down to Chalkpan Clinic downtown, and then sat in the waiting room in a daze. She didn't try to rush herself in. She just sat there on one of the benches, and when she finally went up, when it was her turn, the people at the reception desk just bustled her into the back room where a doctor took a look at me, and he could already tell by measuring my legs that the muscles in my left leg had already started to atrophy. So my sister and brother tell me, well, I remember you being in the hospital, and I remember we couldn't see you except through this little window in the hospital door and um, then for years after my mom um, had to massage my legs and she took me to the beach to walk in the wet sand to try to strengthen them and then she just held held this sense of guilt I guess for 35 years after that and it just made made me so sad to think that my getting this disease had caused my mom so much pain so I guess I just wanted your listeners to know that if they're thinking about just taking their chances because it's not likely that their child will get this disease, 
But they should think of it's it's not just the disease that will affect that child for the rest of their lives, but also something that will affect their whole family. And it's something that could be prevented by a simple shot. And I really hope that they do get their children vaccinated. You know, in your email to us, you know, you talked about just the difficulty of, you know, being a kid and having to wear special shoes to school and maybe getting teased <laughs> about it. Yeah. You know, it, it seems like a little thing, but when you're a kid, you know, it makes a big impression. Well, obviously, since I'm talking about it now, um, I remember going to, I went to Paula school when I was small, and I remember sitting under that big, um, banyan tree in the yard and not being able to run and play the same way the other kids did and having to wear these um, ankle-high brown boots. You know, in elementary school, a lot of kids don't wear shoes at all, <laughs> right? And I just remember having to wear these ugly brown boots for years um, to keep my, you know, to support my feet and legs. And it, um, you know, it made an impression. They loved, kids laughed at me because I had these funny-looking shoes and I couldn't go barefoot. And then I remember it was just a huge deal when I got, quote-unquote, regular shoes. You know, Mary Janes were popular in those days. Um, and I didn't get them until I was, like, in nine years old in fourth grade. I remember it being them being blue, and it was a big deal. Yeah, but just said simple things like that where you are different and then right. the effect that has on you psychologically as a, as a, as a young person. Um, and, you know, I'm a, a lover of Hawaiian music and mm -hmm. dance, and uh, I tried taking a hula class at one point in time. It took for several years, but one thing I noticed is because I couldn't flex my ankle enough, I couldn't do all those hula moves as nicely as you'd like to be able to do it. You know, so it's just... Mm. Things like that that just remind you, as I say, as you go through a day, that there was this thing called polio, and it was really prevalent in the 50s and before, and we have almost eradicated it in the world, and we just don't want it to get a hold again. So many people know you, you know, as having this, you know, successful career in the nonprofit world, and, and maybe maybe never knew that uh, you had polio. Yeah, um, I didn't advertise it a lot uh-huh um but <laughs> if you look at how i dress i always wore long pants and the mm -hmm. reason for that is because my left leg is atrophied and it's like just begging for somebody to make a comment or mm -hmm. notice and you know but we are not good about inclusion in our society and i didn't want anything to distract from the mission of the organizations that i served it just gave me a sense of um, empathy, empathy, perhaps, yes, with yes. people who have challenges of different kinds. And virtually everyone has something. <laughs> well, thank you so much again for reaching out. I, I really do appreciate it. And um, yeah, oh, thank I'm, you. I'm hoping thank that, yeah, you. it will at least make people think about this, you know, and what we can do yeah, to protect I mean, ourselves. That's all we can do. I yes. Mean, I, I, you know, I'm not used to talking much out of the world anymore mm -hmm. but i just thought it was important yeah, so well, if it helps that's great all right well thank you so much i really appreciate Thanks, you uh, reaching out we were talking with susan Doyle, retired nonprofit executive and hbr listener who shared her story about surviving polio In today's Backyard Quiz, we thought about a woman whose 1872 visit to Hawaii led to a classic early book about the islands, the Hawaiian archipelago, six months among the palm groves, coral reefs, and volcanoes of the Sandwich Isles. She was a world-traveling adventurer who battled health problems throughout her life, but did not let them slow her down. She was the first woman elected to the Royal Geographical Society and earned fame as a naturalist, author, and photographer. She said her Hawaiian friends told her, quote, that I had seen the islands more thoroughly than any other foreign visitor and the volcano of Mauna Loa, especially under favorable conditions. 
and that I had so completely lived the island life and acquainted myself with the existing state of the country as to be rather a kama'aina than a stranger. And her name was Isabella Bird, the answer to today's backyard quiz. We had lots of callers, but it was Charlene Nishida from the Big Island, a first-time winner who had the fastest fingers. That is today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Sutter Health Kahi Mohala, serving families, children, and adolescents with behavioral health services since 1983, dedicated to providing treatment for healing and hope. Sutter Health Kahi Mohala. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, should public transit be free? I cannot answer that without context. And how can cities encourage more people to ride their buses and trains? People won't start using public transit unless they have actual access to it. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Beginning this evening at 7, following Counterspin. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaiian Airlines, connecting the local community with more than 120 flights daily between the islands. Schedules and reservations at hawaiianairlines.com. photographers one show it's entitled portraits in monochrome floyd tokiuchi curated the exhibit at the downtown art center it features black and white images from across the community taken by three longtime friends who i happen to sit around the table with photojournalist pf bentley features molokai residents an island which he now calls home. Bentley is an award-winning Time Magazine photographer and most recently was with the Honolulu Civil Beat. Ed Grieby is a longtime photojournalist who has documented the roots of the Hawaiian Renaissance movement, you know, capturing evictions of all types. I sat down with all of them at the opening of the show, but we started our conversation with Takeuchi. The focus of his images are around the power of a skirt. Takeuchi takes a Micronesian skirt and, as he calls it, flips the image. He challenges you to look past prejudice and see how female leaders in this matriarchal society are reclaiming their power. So I was born and raised in Micronesia. I've had a long history there, and uh, I've been very concerned with the uh, some of the local attitudes towards the Micronesian community. It's, it's a, not untypical of a new newcomers, bottom, bottom of the heap and that sort of thing. But the, the skirt to me is symbolic of the, um, it's the visual that people most, most associate with the, uh, with the uh, community. And I thought, use, this, use the skirt as a symbol and flip it you know, so that the people wearing the skirts are the last people in the world you'd expect to be wearing skirts. We have attorneys, uh, diplomats, uh, CEOs, uh, PhDs, and uh, it's, it's, a ch- it's a chance for locals to uh, just be surprised a bit and maybe rethink their own assumptions about the community. And the Micronesian community, I know, is starving for role models uh, as you know the community here gets larger and they try and adapt um, because it's very different from from where they all grew up. Well, the the one thing that is the same is that the, the Micronesian uh, cultures and their their multiple cultures are all uh, uh, women play the dominant role, and so I, I'm trying try to put the women back in charge again. And uh, I, I think the the, um, the 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 power that these women have to to lead by example, as well as as by uh, through through position, is is was noticeable when, when I was doing the shooting for the for the project. We had, in fact, in this very very room, we had a, a public studio that I built, and some of the women brought their their daughters with them, and when these young, mostly teenagers, met 
these accomplished women who are also of Micronesian ancestry, they, you could almost see the tears in their eyes. They were so in awe of these women and what they represented to them for their community. I've, I've noted that, look, we're not gonna change the community overnight, but if I can change one person's point of view, that's, that's the beginning and that's, that's, that's where we start. And uh, if we can do one here, one there, five someplace else, uh, I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's positive. One of the uh, participants in the project uh, is uh, on the Board of Education. And she's asked me to be, become involved working with some of the Micronesian student groups to help, help them tell their own story. And so that's the, the next phase, I think. And so what did these gals share with you, you know, after doing this photo shoot? Well, some of them, I, I didn't know most of them. So uh, they were a little bit skeptical when this person who did, they didn't know, who appeared to be a local, was saying, hey, can I take your picture wearing a Micronesian skirt? They thought, who the heck are you? But once we started talking, they got very excited and into it. And uh, one of the participants even told me that she, uh, this was an answer to her prayers because it, she's been looking for a way to recast the narrative for the Micronesians. And this is part of that process. And then PF, I do miss seeing your photos <laughs> in Civil Week. I've always thought that you brought an edge to those images you know, I think of many at the state capitol, you know, that really kind of captured the dynamic of politics. Uh, so what was it like being in a part of this show? Well, what I enjoy is, you know, Ed and I have known each other for 50 years. And Ed was the one that taught me how to do the film and to print. And so for the first time, he and I are in one show. And then Floyd and I knew each other from this other show I was in. And I just feel that you have three photographers with each of us has our own style and it works. It's just an honor to be with these two. Do you have any, I don't know, favorites in this show? You know, these are people that I know on island. And my goal here is to have a, a, a historical archive, which in 100 years or 200 years will show the people that lived on Molokai at this time. And I wanted to do it in a very straight on way. I grew up in Honolulu. And when I got there in uh, 71, it was like the urban kid coming off on this very rural island. And I totally fell into it. So what is it that you, you want to convey uh, to the people, let's say, have, who have never been to Molokai and who maybe do not know these personalities? Just that, you know, uh, I think the island is looked at as kind of like the flyover island, which is okay with all of us. And I just want to show the people that are there. I think there's surprises for people who have never gone over there. It's kind of like my way to give back to a culture that I grew up in. That was P.F. Bentley. We also talked with Ed Grevy. He's been documenting the rise of Hawaiian activism in the islands. His portraits for this show focus on the fight to gain access to Makua Valley, which has been under military control for decades. But Grevy says the start of it all was really with the group Save Our Surf. The members were taking a stand for something a community cared deeply about, and that was access to surf spots, as well as clean water and protecting it from sewage. Grevy recalls coming across a flyer about a meeting organized by John Kelly for an SOS meeting. They were young surfers who were passionate about protecting what they loved. So I was struck by their sincerity and their methods. They're, and I went to their first meeting, I went to my first meeting, and the, the Treasury Secretary gave a report. They had less than $10 in the bank. <laughs> I thought to myself, 
they're not going anywhere with $10. And they weren't worried about it because they knew how to raise money. So they had, they were one of the sponsors along with Columba Valley, an organization that had sprung up. So they had a big, the biggest at the time rally protest at a government agency, which was at the Capitol downtown. And um, there were so many of them at one point, they had, a, they had gathered petitions to demand a sewage plant and, and the cessation of plans to go ahead with widening the beach at, at Waikiki because surfers learned, a lot of kids, small kids, learned how to surf there because they could walk back and forth. Because in those days, Waikiki was not totally tourist uh, filled. The, the Diamond Head End had a lot of local people living there. And I don't think they're there anymore. And, and so you really were then documenting kind of the early days of this activism. I, I just thought it didn't make sense to build these big high rises that were relatively permanent and to, to destroy one way or another surfs or, or prevent access to them. Uh, it just didn't make it didn't it didn't resound with me at all. I wasn't surfing much in those days. I was working, but I had a, a, a one man commercial studio, so I had equipment, and uh, I went to John Kelly after I met him, and and told him, I'm not an organizer. Um, I'm a I'm a long time visitor, so to speak. But I have equipment, and I can I can help you, because he used to carry a camera around his neck, and it, periodically at, at public events he would go off to the side and document what was happening. So I told him I could that's where I could help him spend. He could spend more time organizing uh, if I took pictures for him. So after not too long, he had his own press. In those days, if you wanted commercial printing of a leaflet, the commercial shops wouldn't wouldn't print it. They're just afraid. So he used to say all the time, the only free press is the one you own. And it's kind of funny, but it's somewhat true. Most of the kids had been attracted to the organization, which it was very loosely run. It didn't have any votes or anything. but. When the kids were, were understood that the state and, and large developers had cooled, so to speak, and um, most of the battles over access and other things had been won, and uh, they were free to go back to whatever they were to spend their time however they wanted. But he and, and some others that he knew who had helped out with Save Our Surf we're going to stay active because the struggle was moving inland, so to speak, and uh, he was going to stay with it. We were, and anybody who had participated in it and Save Our Surf was free to do that too. So most people went back to what they were doing, but there were a few, including myself. I just found it fascinating. But what struck me about these images in particular was the uh the sense of loss, and you can see it in, in people's eyes, and uh, it holds up very well all these years later from the early, early 90s. And uh, I, I think the, the magic of Ed Grevy's photography is that the compassion comes through very strongly, and this is a very compassionate portfolio. Ed was the photographer of that era, and in a longer term history, his images are going to live on to show the struggle that Hawaiians have had here in the islands. And, you know, when Ed was doing a lot of these iconic images, I was working, uh, shooting rock and roll acts, and I go, hey, Ed, how's this look? And he go, yeah, it's another guy with a guitar. And, you know, at this time, I had any idea Ed was printing 
what would be these icons of the uh, era. I think what particularly interests, interests me about the mix of our images is that we, we have very different styles, extremely different styles. It's, it's true that Ed likes contrast. I like contrast too, but not quite as much as he does. But, uh, but, but I think what, what, what links us all together as photographers is a sense of um, the importance of people in, in the story. And we're, we're all storytellers, but we all rely heavily on people to tell the story. We have been hearing from photographers Floyd Takeuchi, Ed Grieby, and P.F. Bentley. Their works are included in the Portraits in Monochrome exhibit at the Downtown Art Center on Oahu. The show opened last weekend and runs through the end of October. The gallery hours are Tuesday through Sunday from 11 to 6 p.m., admissions free. Well, that wraps it up for us today. Tomorrow, we plan to hear from former First Lady Jean Ariyoshi, who shares her recollections about the late Queen Elizabeth when the monarch visited our state. Got some feedback for us? Share your comments, questions about what you've heard by calling our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.